certainly I, I've been, you know, again, slightly warned off. I mean, several people really? have been warned off. Well, yeah, the word is this is not something that, that should be looked at. And this is a murder, uh, which, of course, has never been solved from 1943. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Now, that was Andrew Lowney, who you heard at the top there, and he's talking about being warned off. Yes, warned off. I couldn't, I was, I didn't think that thing, that such a thing actually happened. I'm, I'm so naive. But uh, clearly in his investigation and, and his book, Traitor King, which is what we uh, were talking about, uh, all about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, he, he's, he's certainly ruffled some feathers. And so we talk a little bit about murder, conspiracy, uh, explosive revelations, really. Um, and then we move on a little bit and talk about Guy Burgess and... And I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Guy Burgess was one of the Cambridge spies who was spying for the Russians during the Cold War. And then he defected and lived out his days in a kind of alcoholic stupor, really. Um, so it's rather a sad ending. Um, but some would say a deserved ending. Uh, I personally, uh, there's humanity in us all and he did die very miserably uh there is a very good i recommend a very good play tv play with alan bates written by alan bennett called a gentleman abroad and it's absolutely brilliant and it's based off a chance meeting between guy burgess when he was a he was he had been in russia from for a few years by then and he meets the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company who are on a tour to Moscow and he I don't think he he is actually at the performance itself he he sort of barges in to one of the actresses dressing rooms and it's all about a sort of a two-day period um over where she meets him so I really recommend it. I mean it's Adam Bellet so you you can't go wrong with that and one thing that that stayed with me was he eats he eats this tomato with cloves of raw garlic stuck in each of the little segments, uh, which is a bit of a weird di- dish. Um, but I ate some raw garlic last night, and I don't ask, but uh, I'm still stinking of it today. But anyway, that I completely digress. Now, so it's Christmas. We just had our Christmas party on Wednesday. We're about the only uh, magazine or website or history-related anything that actually proceeded with our website. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and I I had a good time. There were lots of nice historians there, and so we uh, we did have a good time. I hope you guys are too. Uh, I've got a few more days till the big day, uh, so I've got a. This is going to be the final part of 2021 before. uh, So I'm shutting up shop and going to buy presents and things. And I hope you guys all have a wonderful Christmas. Um, We've we've just released our magazine. If you're interested, it's got James Holland in it. It's got Dan Jones in it. It's got Tessa Dunlop and Margaret Macmillan. Now, if you know, if you're not familiar with Margaret Macmillan, you should be. She's brilliant. She is 
she actually gave the BBC Radio 4 Wreath Lectures and she's written a piece for us uh, asking, answering questions that she's often asked about war. What is it good for? Um, so she is has written a piece for us in the magazine and I'm a big fan of Margaret McMillan. I do recommend you uh, have a look into some of her works. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm motoring on now we should be getting on with the podcast so uh, I hope you enjoy it uh, we talk about lots of things as I said um, I'll put show notes for the stuff we mentioned throughout uh, in the episode and so that you can uh, look into things further if you're interested and so without much further ado I'll hand you over to me and Andrew Now, it's, uh, I was thinking about a bit of a counterfactual, um, which I know historians, many historians hate. So please indulge me for a moment. But if, if he had been executed, uh, I, and I know it's a big if, because um, there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't think that was particularly useful. I just wonder what impact that would have been on the monarchy and, 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 and how, that would have, how the monarchy would have recovered from such a, you know, that would have been massive. Well, I don't I think they could have done that. But there was a man called Peter Russell, who was later a, a professor of Spanish at Oxford University. And Peter Russell was sent to uh, Lisbon in that summer of 1940 with an eye to keep, with a, 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 a mission to keep an eye on him and told to shoot him if required. So I think they were prepared to, to stage uh, some sort of uh, killing um, to, to, to sort him out if required. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Peter Russell is dead and has never uh, spoke only in very vague terms to his um, biographer. But um, so that would be very interesting to find out more about that. But I think they, there was a solution. But your no counterfactual history, I think, is very interesting. And, and it's what's there's a section at the end of the book where I look at all the fiction connected with the Duke. And the vast majority of it is actually around this question of whether what would have happened either if he'd become king in 1936 or indeed he'd been brought back as a Petain figure with Lloyd George as prime minister in 1940. Uh, so this is, you know, like Len Dayton's SSGB, and it, it is fascinating to think about it. And of course, the fascinating thing also is that if he had reigned, the Queen would not have come to power until 1972 when he died. So we would have had a very, very different story. You know, I suspect, you know, Jews would have been sent to extermination camps. Uh, we would have had Oswald Mosley been given a prominent role. He remained friendly with Mosley to the end of his life. Uh, you know, our, our history would have been very, very different. Uh, it almost doesn't bear thinking about. It's 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 so frightening. I I mean, if um, and I really like what you did with with listing all those fiction books. Um, I, one I read, Any Human Heart by William Boyd. Um, yeah, which, wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it really very is. clever. Yeah, I've so talked I mean, this should, should uh, about it. Because, yeah. of course, what we haven't talked about is the Harry Oakes murder in the Bahamas. Which exactly, was yes. deeply involved. And uh, Will talks about this in the book. Uh, and it's still a huge um, thing in the Bahamas. I mean, he said he was asked to leave a, a cocktail party when he raised the, the, the question. And certainly I, I've been, you know, again, slightly warned off. I mean, several people really? have been died. warned off. Well, yeah, the word is this is not something that, that should be looked at. And this is a murder... Uh, which of course has never been solved from 1943 
Um, the background, as you know, is that the, the, a very close friend of the Duke, Harry Oakes, who's probably the richest person on the Bahamas, was found murdered in his bed one morning. Um, the first person to be told uh, was the Duke, who strangely uh, ordered a news blackout. And, and instead of getting in Scotland Yard or the FBI from New York or even the RAF police, he brought in two crooked FBI agents from Miami to investigate this, who planted evidence on Harry Oakes's son-in-law to try and frame him for the crime, um, having been in since put up to this by the Duke. Uh, and you know he was res almost responsible for sending an innocent man to the gallows. And it, it looks like the Duke was involved in some shady financial dealings involved with Oakes and the man who uh, I think everyone thinks ordered the hitmen to kill Harry Oakes, a man called Harold Christie who was a prominent businessman and later knighted. Uh, um, but that story has never fully come out. Again, the papers have been destroyed. People won't talk. And most people who know about the case, of course, are now dead. Um, but I do have, as you know, a, a whole chapter on it and about the mysterious deaths of people involved in investigating it and the way that uh, the, the cases, the attempts to open up the case have always been closed. Uh, the Duke closed one at the end of the war. Um, uh, and no one really has been allowed to reinvestigate it, but it was a very sloppy investigation. Uh, and it's, it's clear that, that um, uh, there is more to it than meets the eye. Mm. And his time in the Bahamas, he, well, he, he, he kind of gave up as well, didn't he? I, I assume the Oaks murder was a factor in that, but he, he, he didn't stick out his, uh, his, his, his tenants. His tenants. No, he, he, well, he served more or less to the end of the war, but he, he didn't really get involved. Wallace was much better. She got involved with the, the, the canteen at the RAF base and worked there. She was involved with the Red Cross. She tried to make the best of what they called Elba, their exile. But he was bored. He really had no power. It was run by a group of local businessmen called the Bay Street Boys. Uh, he... Um, was drinking very heavily. I mean, he would, for example, the stories of him just going to strip shows. He played a lot of golf uh, and uh, he was involved in these shady financial dealings. He was trying to get money out of the Bahamas and invested in property in Mexico through this Nazi-owned um, um, bank. Uh, so, you know, he, he again, all this stuff is close. He was, he, was con he was intriguing against to trying to stop America coming into the war until they did so in December 41. Uh, so people would come back. We know from the postal censorship reports of, of, of him talking to people at dinners about his pro-German views. He was very close to a man called Axel Venegren, who was a Swedish industrialist known as Goering's pal, who was a big landowner on the island. But again, um, British and American intelligence were deeply suspicious of him. They thought that his the deep harbours that he was building at this property in the Bahamas was to service U-boats uh, cruising in the Caribbean. Uh, the Duke was repeatedly warned by both the British and the Americans, and we have those reports, not to get involved with Axel Gren, who was put on the blacklist. But he continued to, to socialise with him and indeed to work with him financially. He didn't care. Yeah, that, that's that, that, that's what I feel through reading throughout the book. He just didn't he just didn't seem to care, did he? He's almost like a sociopath, isn't he? Yeah, he was such a narcissist. He was very open and very stupid and he knew he would be protected. Uh, he was a consummate liar uh, and he knew that people would, would have his back. Uh, and uh, he was so greedy for making money um, that that he 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 wasn't cautious about the way he operated. He had this contempt 
for the civil servants and advisors around him. He ignored their advice, again, shades of some of the current members of the royal family. Um, and it's only now, as you say, you know, 50 years after his death and, and, and 80 years after these events, that um, the story is beginning to emerge. Now, the relationship between uh, the Duke and the Duchess is also very odd. Uh, now, when I was younger um, and innocent and, and, and stupid, I, I, I assumed that they were in love and he had given it all up for love. Um, but that, that's not the case either, is it? You no, no, I, I don't think you were stupid because, I mean, that was the line that was pumped out and is still believed, particularly in the States. It's a great romantic story. Madonna's done films on it. Um, but the reality was that these were two people trapped in a marriage that certainly one of them didn't want. Wallace uh, was emotionally blackmailed into marrying him when he threatened to kill himself in 1936. I mean, even before they got married, she was confiding to people like Diana Cooper on the Nayland cruise in October 36 that she found him extremely boring and didn't want to be, you know, spend time alone in his company. But she was sort of, you know, she enjoyed being the king's mistress. He was lavishing attention, jewels. She, on her, he was meeting interesting people, but she never expected to, to have to marry him. Uh, and so, in a sense, events overtook them. He was obsessed with her. He had this mother fixation. He liked dominant woman. Uh, the more awful she was, the more he liked it. I mean, often he went to bed in tears. She would tell him to buzz off mosquito. Uh, people were appalled by the way she, she treated him. But the, the, the worse she treated him, and she treated lots of people like that, including servants and, 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 and retail staff, people, shopkeepers and people, um, the more he liked it. Um, and she was bored in this marriage. Uh, she uh, began to have affairs, uh, including a long-standing one with a man called Jimmy Donoghue, who was actually bisexual. People quipped that he'd given up a queen, sorry, king for a queen. Uh, but the great advantage of Jimmy Donoghue was that he was rich and picked up a lot of their bills. And there's some suggestion from people like Scotty Bowers, who was a sort of uh, actor in Hollywood, he procured, uh, uh, pimped for the stars, that they actually took advantage of his services and were both bisexual. Um, and there's quite a lot of evidence from people from Chips Chan and Robert uh, Bruce Lockhart's diaries through to contemporary people like Nicky Haslam, who knew the gay world at the time and knew Wallace, that they were actually bisexual, both of them. So, um, it wasn't a love affair. Uh, he tried to buy her love with jewels uh, um, and they were sort of stuck together and they were sort of restless. They were constantly traveling, constantly staying with people, constantly entertaining to hide the emptiness of their lives. And that's what comes across. It's just the sheer emptiness. They, they, it seemed to be that after the Bahamas, they didn't really have anything to do. And so their job was to sort of design dinner plans and, and make sure they had the right guest list and things like that. Exactly, exactly. And I think in some ways that could be argued as one of the mistakes. Churchill thought that he needed to be given something to do, but the royal family were very against it. Uh, I mean, they were aware of the treachery. In fact, George VI was briefed about it, just as literally came off the, the, the celebrations for VE Day. Um, and, you know, there was a great deal of animosity. Wallace called the Queen Mum the witch from Glans. Uh, the Queen Mum called her that woman. You know, they, they, they felt very strongly that they'd, they'd, they'd broken the, you know, he'd broken his oath that he had taken you know, as king, to be king, that he caused a great deal of upset in the family. He'd behaved very badly of the financial settlement. He'd been a traitor to the country. Uh, and they really didn't want him to be given any role whatsoever. 
And there was this worry that he would use it for his own private uh, gain. I mean, one again thinks of, of roles given to Prince Andrew and how he exploited those. Uh, and that he would be an embarrassment. And so what they wanted was him to, to go to the States or to France where he was given tax exile status uh, and just basically keep quiet. Um, and in fact, you know, when they came to Britain, or Wallace was never really welcome in Britain, but when he came back, he never stayed at Buckingham Palace. He always had to stay at Claridge's. Uh, and it was only in the 19, late 1960s that the royal family realized this wasn't playing well in terms of public opinion. Uh, and that they were brought back for some veiling of Queen Mary's plaque in 1967. And then, you know, they began to send flowers and there were quiet private visits. But even then, Prince Charles, uh, when he popped in to see them once, uh, when he was in Paris, was appalled at the, their behaviour and, the, and, and the people that they mixed with. I mean, one of their close friends was a man called Clint Murchison, who's now been implicated in J.F. Kennedy's assassination. These were not people that they should be you know, that if this had emerged and he'd had some public role and they were friends with these people, this would not have looked good. So, uh, you know, they gardened, played golf, uh, entertained, as you say, and um, looked at their, their um, stocks and shares. And that was it. Um, you know, they could have done something for charity. There could have been all sorts of national of organisations that they could have used their influence to, to support and help. I mean, they did very, very little for charity. And the, for the current, you've mentioned current members of the royal family. Uh, did the Queen uh, um, have or have any kind of relationship with uh, her uncle, or it was because yes. she was obviously very young when it when when he abdicated? Yeah, I mean, she supposedly he was her favourite uncle, and there are lots of pictures of her with him. I mean, she was only ten when the abdication happened. Um, uh, and clearly uh, she was torn because um, her mother, she knew that her mother uh, hated the Windsors. Her father had actually been quite close, you know, Bertie and, and um, it's a bit like Harry and, and, and William now, Bertie and David had been quite close as brothers. Um, but I think, you know, she, she, she was always, public duty came first ahead of the, the family. Yeah. Um, but it was only really with advice in the 1960s that she began to, to sort of, put out overtures. I mean, what actually struck me, I only got into the Royal Archives after the book came out because they've been closed during COVID, but actually what's appeared from the stuff I've seen there is actually the, the family felt even more angry uh, and bitter about um, the abdication and about him than I think has actually come out publicly. So it was a much, much more bitter um, family feud than the books have even suggested to this point. That's interesting. I are you going to put that in a, a new edition or paperback? Then? Yes, I'd like to try and update. The paperback comes out in May uh, for the 50th anniversary of the Duke's death and to tie in with the Channel 4 documentary. So we are finding new things and I will try and add stuff if I can to update the paperback. Uh, but I'm certainly keeping the files open. I mean, it's a long, it's a long process. So you're only allowed into the Royal Archives for one day uh, a month at the moment. Uh, and there are, I know, 40 different boxes of material which are available to researchers, this is apart from whatever is closed. So I am finding little nuggets of, of material there, which I'd like to add. And, and do you think the COVID situation has been used as an excuse in your, in your battle to, um, to get more of the archives or is it, 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 it 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's been used, for example, to delay freedom of information requests. Um, people couldn't go in and look at records. So, for example, requests I made to, particularly to the Metropolitan Police, to look at these special branch reports, which, you know, I'm now told have been destroyed, but their line is is uh, haven't actually even been catalogued yet. Uh, but that's, you know, those things that should be dealt with in 24 hours, sorry, 24 days have now taken six to eight months. I'm still waiting for requests made two years ago. So, yes, that has been used. And they've actually even said that uh, because the staff have been working from home and haven't been able to go in, that these are vexatious requests. and They're not required to even answer them. So, yes, they have they have used COVID as an excuse not to be open and transparent. Um, the irony is in the States, it's made research a lot easier, that a lot of material has been digitalized uh, and is available either for payment or some of it for free. So I, that was how I was able to get a lot of this information from places like the Bahamas and from the States. They, they just literally stuck it in a PDF and, and emailed it to me. Um, the Churchill College archives were brilliant. They actually gave me online access to their archive, which saved numerous trips to Cambridge and allowed me to, to spend a lot of time looking even at draft emails as opposed or draft telegrams as opposed to the published telegrams. So I was able to get behind the story of not necessarily what everyone uh, wanted to be known, but actually what was really happening. So COVID had good and bad sides to it. Um, uh, the American National Archives have only just opened. I'm about to go and look at their files. And there are some files um, of the previous biographers with interviews from people who, for example, knew or worked with the, uh, the Windsors, which I'm hoping also to go and look at, which were used by previous biographers. Uh, or, or, but I suspect some stuff was, was not used because of sensitivities with people still alive. So I'm hoping for fresh disclosures in, in any update. Well, uh, it, it needs must... an article article for aspects of history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it must feel like wading through treacle. It really must. But uh... it's hard because I've done uh, books previously on unsympathetic characters. I liked flawed heroes. So I did a book on the, the uh, Guy Burgess member of the that, that I get that's I gave that to my father and he really liked it. But he did. He did say what an awful man. <laughs> well, people fall into two camps. They're, 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 yeah. Most people say, what an awful man. And he was an awful man. Uh, some people, um, uh, generally, uh, so we say less establishment people. I mean, you know. Yeah, my father's but, definitely establishment. He's definitely yeah, establishment. You know, people who are civil servants and all those people, army people like that, would, would, yeah. would that awful. But, you know, other people uh, found him rather charismatic uh, and an interesting uh, character and a rather sad figure because, of course, he gave up his a career to, to basically go into exile in the, in, in the, um, in the Russia. And the Mountbatten's, of course, again, were flawed. They had their, their difficult private lives, but again, a terrific sense of public service. And I think the theme of all these books is the sense of hidden or secret lives, of dual lives, that there's a public picture which is presented and actually often um, supported by history and the government. And then the cover-up and the real story behind the scenes and the secret life. Uh, and, and that's that's always been, a th I think, the theme of the last three biographies. And I hope I'll try and find a similar figure for the next book. I, I did want to ask you just and I, because you've mentioned Burgess. I'm going to just ask another question because I find him fascinating. But have you seen that film? Another um, another, another country, country with very much based Rupert on Everett. Burgess. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Based on Burgess. Uh, uh, and what's very interesting is the uh, um, author, Julian Mitchell, I think, knew something about the story from, again, gay, gay circles. 
Uh, and um, as you know, one of the themes of the book is, is about him having to carry the can on fairly, partly for his homosexuality, but, uh, uh, but partly he's, he's wrongly punished for, for something. And um, I think there's probably some truth there. And there's, what's fascinating, again, and I have a section in the book um, on the, the literature. I'm always fascinated by, in a sense, the literature and the myths and the stories that emerge um, about people, how uh, particularly creative people, playwrights and, and, and novelists, um, look at these characters. And I think one of the best books, for example, about Blunt is John Banfield's book, the novel. You know, often those books have more insight and are truer than, than the biographies can be. But the great advantage I had with the Burgess book was I started researching the book in 1984 when Burgess would only have been 73. So a lot of his contemporaries were alive. I interviewed them. And then I had the benefit of a lot of files being released in 2015 when the book came out, um, which were, for example, the investigations by the Foreign Office Security Department. So I was able to marry the, the two and, and give, you know, what people have very sweetly said is, is probably a definitive account because we, we were unlikely to get many more um, disclosures or to have anyone else who will be able to talk about it. Um, and, and that's what I try and do. I try and be as definitive in the books as I can by, by, by concentrating on the primary research. Well, I think you've certainly achieved it with Traitor King. Um, it's, I, I can't see what else can be added in. So, well, I, that we, we, might, we might have more for the paperback, but it, it, as you say, I think uh, what you've done here is, I, I, as I say, my jaw was on the floor. So it's fantastic. Well, we, thank you very much. The Burgess book. I'll do a piece for you, you know, on the new on the new material. Great, that would be fantastic. Um, and then the, the 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 Burgess book is Stalin's Englishman. Um, but I'll put notes on on this for our listeners to so they can um, they can have a look at that as well. Okay, so I guess you're working on on this sort of legal battle um, and don't have much time to write a new book. But have you got any ideas of what you want to do next? Well, I'm no, I'm looking. I'm looking, for example, at the death of T.E. Lawrence, which has always been suggested. The motorbike crash. The, yes, but the motorbike was covered with, with, with a paint from a black car, a mysterious black car. Uh, and we know from some of the eyewitnesses, many of whom were soldiers, and from the boys who were riding ahead of him, that, they, that there was a black car there. And again, it's a big cover up, everything, there was a news blackout. So I don't think we've got the true story of, of T. Lawrence's death. So that's, that's a strong contender. But whether one will ever get access to the archives, clearly all the people involved are now dead. Uh, that's the struggle. And sometimes one does a bit of work and then finds that one can't, you know, only gets so far and one can't actually, you know, there isn't enough for a full book. Well, it sounds juicy, uh, but good luck with finding some, some nuggets in there. Um, and... I, I think that just leaves us to uh, thank you very much for, for, for coming on and talking about the Duke and Duchess of Winter. It's been really interesting and best of luck with the ongoing battles with the, uh, with the government. Well, that's very kind. I mean, I'm doing a crowdfunding at the moment um, on crowd justice to try and raise money because I've run out of money. So if there are historians who feel this is an important issue or people who believe in, in, in academic freedom, freedom of speech, um, uh, I'd be very grateful. I've got to raise 42,000 by Christmas. So um, I will put a link in the, in the, uh, in the show notes. That'd so. be very kind. Thank you very much. Anyway, it's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, I love the magazine and, and, and I'd love to do a piece for it uh, maybe next year. Oh, Andrew, thank you. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that, and I certainly did. And I'm glad that we chatted a little bit about Burgess and some of the uh, some of the other things that Andrew's been working on. So um, I've I've actually put notes of everything that we talked about that was um, that is something that you can look into further. So at the beginning, I talked about uh, the Alan Bennett play, so I'll put that in. And then there's, of course, the two novels that Andrew... In fact, three novels. John Banville's novel, there's the Any Human Heart by William Boyd and SSGB by Len Dayton. And then there is the film Another Country, which stars Rupert Everett and, and Colin Firth. They're both very young, and I really recommend that too. And the book that, got, uh, that um, Andrew has written was Stalin's Englishman and so I'll put that into plus his crowdfunding campaign which is an important principle right well now I'm going to go off and uh, cook the ham stuff the, the turkey wrap the presents and so I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas and New Year I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for listening for tolerating me and I will be returning in January so I hope you can uh, you can I'm sure you can wait till then but um, I will be back in January with more great guests talking about more fantastic history and if you want to get hold of me at any point you can I'm on the Twitter at Ollie WCQ that's at O-L-L-I-E-W-C-Q there is the Aspects of History Twitter, that's at Aspects History. There's always great stuff coming out on that, loads of free articles and stuff like that. So if you're sitting on the sofa having digested a huge Christmas meal and you want to just have a look through some articles, just head over to our website. And then there is Andrew Lowney's Twitter, that's at Andrew Lowney, and that's uh, Lowney spell L-O-W-N-I-E and uh, you can also um, follow us on the Instagram but anyway I'm going to sign off now thank you very much for listening and I'll see you or speak to you in January thank you and good night. <laughs>